We are in Acts chapter 28, if you have your own Bible or if you have your Bible app, or I think it'll even be on the screen today as well. But Acts chapter 28, and we're going to read the last 14 verses of the chapter. And today this is the end. This is the last sermon, 43 of them, that we've walked through the book of Acts over two seasons. And so uh, really good to finish it. Uh, it's kind of sad to see it finish especially in the way it finishes. I don't know if you've ever read a book that you couldn't stop reading and and then you got to the end and it had an you know an even more satisfying ending. One of my favorite books, I don't know if you've ever read it is um, Unbroken by Lauren Laura Hillenbrand. Anybody read that book? Uh, it was one of those books I picked up on my Kindle maybe 7 or 8 years ago and I read so much of it, and then I had to go to a conference in Harrisburg. So I drove over in the evening and uh, got in my spot and started reading, and I had to be at this conference at 7, and it was like 7 to 7, all day training and teaching. And I just couldn't stop reading. I read and read and read until I think at like 4.30 in the morning, I finally forced myself to put it down and, and shut it off and just pried my eyes open all, all day the next day. And then immediately, you know, as soon as it was over, I, I went and I finished the book. But it's an incredible story. And uh, from start to finish, easily one of the uh, top three biographies I've ever read. Uh, and, but even better, it had a very satisfying ending where this uh, Olympic athlete who participated in Berlin in 1936, uh, at the end of the book, was able to you know, light the torch in the 1998 Olympics in Japan where he was a prisoner of war during World War II. Incredible. But compare that to, uh, I don't know if you've ever watched a TV series or a movie and it just had an absolute terrible ending. Or maybe a book with a really unsatisfying ending. Um, I think just recently we rewatched the whole Lost series on TV and and talk about getting to the end and it being like, what? I don't, I, there were a thousand questions that, you know, never got answered. And what was this all about anyway? Uh, some people hated the Seinfeld ending. I was kind of okay with it. And you might be asking, what does all this have to do with the, with the book of Acts? Well, believe it or not, when it gets to these last 14 verses, um, there are so many people who are completely unsatisfied with the ending. We've just walked with Paul through 15 or more chapters of this super exciting, <clears throat> explosive growth of the church and cities being converted. And, you know, by the end, Paul is saying, I, I, there's no more work for me to do in Europe, the Middle East and North Africa. I'll have to go somewhere else to share the gospel. That's the arc of the action in the book of Acts that we've followed. And yet, when we get to chapter 22, where Paul is taken into custody in Jerusalem, the action tends to stall out. You know, over the last two sermons, I've covered two whole chapters in each sermon. Um, and I never do that. I usually just take a small chunk and, and it's so there's so much there that it, it takes up a sermon. But but we've been able to cover a lot of action in two chapters, a lot of content in two chapters. But now we get to the end and we get to the last part and, and we don't really ever get to find out whatever happened to Paul, right? Does he ever get out of Roman prison? Does he get to travel to Spain? There are myths and legends, uh, unverified sources that would say yes, uh, others. It's just a conflicting 
uh, we just don't know what happened to him in the end. If, he, if these were his last two years, or uh, we're not quite sure. And so Acts leaves a little bit left to be desired. And yet that was never really Luke's point in writing the book of Acts, right? His point was not to write a biography of Paul. Paul was just the main messenger in the proclamation of the gospel around the Roman Empire, but we'd also seen Peter highlighted in the first 11 chapters or so. And, and so Luke was never writing just to make Paul the point of the book of Acts. Luke's mission, his purpose, was to testify to the resurrection of Jesus and to the ongoing work of Jesus through his apostles and disciples and followers after the Holy Spirit comes on them and about the expansion of the church. We, you'll remember, we started this series talking about the drama of obedience to the Holy Spirit. That was one theme that someone had labeled the book of Acts. It's about obedience to the Holy Spirit and the growth of the church through the Holy Spirit. Luke was never really primarily trying to write a biography of Paul, and so it's okay if we understand that to leave Paul's point at this ending behind being unsatisfied with Paul being um, not quite tying up all those loose ends. Resurrection is the key to the message that was proclaimed in the early church. Resurrection is a thread that goes throughout the entire book of Acts and in all of their speeches and sermons and the gospel message itself primarily centered on Jesus's Resurrection, and it continues to be the primary message of the church today. Uh, Brandon Crow, a professor at Westminster Seminary, calls Jesus' resurrection a major artery connecting the stories and the sermons of Acts, a powerful theological adhesive unifying the book's overall message and the logical key to the apostles' preaching. Well, that brings some understanding that it was never about Paul. And so when we get to the end here, we might be unsatisfied not knowing about Paul, but then we can reshift our focus and remember that was never really Luke's purpose to begin with. He was focusing on Jesus and his resurrection and the work that continued after that. So I think if you keep that in mind, uh, if you if you remember that the gospel growth and the early church explosion is bigger than Paul's story, I think you might be um, okay with the way Luke ends his gospel. You might even be saying, I don't even know why you're bringing this up. I was fine with it until you started to talk about it, and now I'm you know now I'm questioning that. So let's get into the text. We'll read these last 14 verses. Along the way, I'll, I'll point out some things, and then we'll close with an application point. Starting in verse 17, Paul has arrived in Rome after a four-month sea journey that was supposed to really only take four or five weeks, but through all of those issues that were covered in last week's sermon, he finally gets to Rome. Verse 17, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Let me just pause here. The local leaders of the Jews in Rome certainly was made up of Uh, Jewish synagogue rulers or synagogue leaders, rabbis, the religious um, Jewish officials there in Rome. But it it also could have been made up of uh, 
you know, politicians and lawyers, something that functioned kind of like an ambas- uh, an embassy, where if you were a visiting uh, Jewish person from Israel and you were traveling to Rome and you needed to get maybe some government things done, that there were these inside folks that were also a part of this crowd. It could have included all of those people who were influential, uh, maybe like what we would think of as a lobbyist in our, you know, in our culture today. Those could have made up some of the local leadership. So he called them all together immediately. After three days, Paul's arrived. He he jumps right in, right? And after three days, when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. And just as a reminder, if you haven't been following along um, recently, Paul, over the last seven chapters, had successfully and publicly defended himself in five defenses. Five judicial, civil situations where Paul was accused of something, brought before officials, and defended himself. And he defended himself successfully five times in a row. And in every case, um, especially the last three before the Roman governors, was declared innocent. You'll remember before the Jerusalem mob in chapter 22, before the Supreme Jewish Council in chapter 23, before Felix in chapter 24, before Festus uh, in chapter 25, before Agrippa, King Agrippa in chapter 26. He had five times in a row been declared innocent legally. We have a constitutional protection in our country, you're probably familiar with it, called double jeopardy. It's a constitutional protection uh, that is a, uh, helps us not to be tried or punished twice for the same crime. Well, there was nothing like that for Paul. At least five times he had to defend himself before a Roman court, maybe even six as he's here in Rome for the same reason. This tells us that his opponents were relentless. They wanted Paul dead. They said he was a scourge to the earth, that he was uh, one who causes riots and mobs, and, and they pursued him to the degree that they empowered assassins and facilitated several assassination attempts on Paul's life, but God had rescued him from all of those. Paul continues in verse 19, uh, even though they had wanted to set me at liberty, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. I think it's interesting. Paul still has no hard grievance against his own nation. He's not holding this against them. Uh, He is happily appealing to Caesar and making his way to Rome as the result of the promise that Jesus shared with him on the first night of his custody. If you remember back from chapter 22, you must testify before me in Rome, just as you've done here. And so Paul didn't hold a grudge. But listen to his reason in verse 20. He said, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you. And now he gives the the reason why he's in custody. He says, Since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. It's an interesting phrase, the hope of Israel. It immediately caught my eye on Monday when I sat down to start my sermon worksheet and to begin to 
make my initial observations of the text that would kind of carry me through the week. And then through the week, you know, I stick all the information I can in a kind of a crock pot in my mind and it just simmers all week. And then like Saturday night and Sunday, I, I write and edit and reduce. But, but this phrase kept popping out to me because of the hope of Israel. Paul had reduced all of his legal troubles, all of the conflicts, all the riots, all the, the difficulties that he had faced in the shipwrecks and the sailing and the custodies and the two years in Caesarea and in the Roman custody. He, he reduced all of that to this one phrase. It's because of the hope of Israel that I am in these chains. And so I did a a search. I looked throughout Scripture, and I found that it's only used three times in the Bible. One on this occasion, and two other times in Jeremiah. What does Paul mean by the hope of Israel? Why does he pick up on this somewhat obscure phrase for the primary reason that he's in trouble? What is the hope of Israel? And I guess a better question that you've already picked up on probably is who? It's not a what, but a who. Who is the hope of Israel? Well, let's look into this passage in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8. You don't necessarily have to turn there. It's a very short verse, but if you're taking notes and you want to jot down the reference, it's there. It's probably even in your Bible, in your cross-references, maybe at the bottom or in the middle of your Bible page there in Acts 28. But it's from Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8. And in context, verses 7 through 9, it says, Even though our iniquities testify against us, Act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you, O you, the hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused or like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. So Jeremiah had been prophesying. There was a drought in the land. They were ashamed at their lack and they were crying out to to the Lord as their Savior. And so this hope of Israel is uniquely tied in Jeremiah 14 to identifying the Lord as their Savior in times of trouble, that He was in the midst of them, that they were His people. And that it was with this prayer that that He would not leave them, that He would come to them and that He would rescue them. Then again, it's used in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. And in that passage, Jeremiah is prophesying against Judah. Uh, It says that their hearts were so hard that their sin was engraved on them with a diamond. They had hardened their hearts. They had fallen into idolatry and they had completely forsaken the Lord. And so Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you, shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. All right, so let's just tie this together. So Paul has picked up on these two passages, these two places where the Lord is called the hope of Israel, and he's communicating this to the Jewish leaders in Rome, saying it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm on trial before you today. The hope of Israel was a savior in time of trouble who would come. Uh, The hope of Israel carried with him a consequence for forsaking or rejecting him. So in light of what happens, Paul is already setting them up 
where they would have known this phrase, certainly these religious leaders who were extremely familiar with what we describe as the Old Testament. Uh, The hope of Israel, Paul was saying to them, almost beckoning them to go back into Jeremiah and understand the context of what this phrase is about. Because I'm going to present to you who the hope of Israel is and why I'm on trial and that He is this Savior, the Lord in the midst of us who would come to rescue us and that there is a real consequence for forsaking Him. Alright, so just a lot to unpack in just three little words, hope of Israel. But I think it, it'll... I think it... Um, it, un, it comes together a little bit as you read what happens in the, the remaining part. And by the way, just to put this in and to say it to us here today, the hope of Israel um, is not just the hope of Israel, but is the hope of, of, of us today, right? And the hope of Israel, Jesus himself, he's not just the hope of a nation for a political leader to rescue them from Rome He's not just a slogan for a political party or for a group of people or something like that. Jesus is a personal hope for each of us who have faith in Him. If we're, just listen to this. If we're made for eternity, right? If as Scripture says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. And if we understand that this life is but a vapor, right? Here today, gone tomorrow. Not any of us are promised that we will uh, finish the day by God. Our life is but a vapor, Scripture says. And if we're made for eternity, if, if this life, life is short and it's but a vapor, and if the decisions that you make today regarding faith in Jesus have an eternal consequence, right? And if, you know, if heaven and hell are real, and if hell is the way it's described in Scripture, as this everlasting torment and eternal separation from God, then the hope of Israel is the hope for each person, right? When I first came to faith in Christ, a stranger came to my door and I was from this sort of atheistic to agnostic, immoral, irreligious background. And and one of the key questions he asked me was, if you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And, And I had no idea if that was even possible to know that. And I realized, you know, reading scripture later that, First uh, John five eleven through thirteen. This is the testimony. God has given us life, and this life is in the Son. And he who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John says, "I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life." Listen, assurance of salvation is not something you have to take a wild stab at. It's not a gray area theologically. There are. 15 or more verses that describe in the New Testament the fact of assurance of salvation. More than happy to share that with you. But you don't have to leave wondering if I'm going to heaven, if I die today or not. It is something that you can know. And so if all those things are true, then your life and eternity depend on what you do with Jesus. He's not just the hope of Israel. He is the hope of each of us. The hope of every person who has breath and brain function and a will that can yield to Jesus. Paul taps into this describing him as the reason why he's in chains. The reason Paul is in chains is because he has believed and followed Jesus and yielded his life to him. And every decision, all the course of his life after that Damascus Road experience have led him to this position where he's on trial 
because of the hope of Israel. This phrase, Paul describes as why he's in chains. Not because of riots, not because of mob violence, not because of those cranky Jewish leaders who threw me in prison and accused me falsely. These are not the the final words and, um, you know, life of a guy who's bitter and angry locked up in, in prison. Paul is overwhelmed with joy and hope, and he's in chains because of the hope of Israel. Verse 21. Back in Acts chapter 28, verse 21, they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. It's interesting, they haven't heard anything about Paul yet. That could be because Paul took the ill-advised winter cruise, right? You're not supposed to sail after September, October, and and, and they did it anyway because of the centurion and, and the pilot, and they said, we can do it, you know, we can make it. And instead of four weeks later, they arrived four months later, and it was a terrible trip, right? Maybe that's why they didn't get word that Paul was on his way to... Uh, Rome to be tried, uh, or maybe it was because it was his opponents in Jerusalem after five straight L's, right? They took the loss five times in a row to Paul, finally said, all right, enough. At least he's out of our hair. He's out of the area. He's going to be locked in a Roman prison for years and years and years before he ever sees the light of day again. And so maybe they just dropped it. But either way, the local Roman Jewish leaders had no knowledge of Paul whatsoever. But they did want to know about this, what they describe as a sect that's been spoken against everywhere. Now that was their point of view, but I think we can make the clear assumption that Christianity was well known and widespread. And we're talking about AD 62, right? This is 30 years or so after Jesus's death and resurrection, that Christianity had so spread that in the capital city, this sect was already described as being spoken of everywhere. And so Paul, uh, he appoints a day. In verse 23, it says, uh, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. We just pause here and look. You can see that Paul gave these leaders his absolute best shot. I mean, early in the morning, coffee pot ready. Let's get into it. He's got the scrolls. He's unrolling things. He's reading scripture. He's tracing the scriptures, testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Spends a whole day with them. And coincidentally, this is how Luke also ended his gospel, right? If you remember in Luke chapter 24, uh, after Jesus' resurrection, on the day of his resurrection in the afternoon, two of his disciples are walking from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus. And, and on the way, Jesus walks with them and, and they're somewhat protected from knowing who he was or shielded from knowing who he was and recognizing him. And, and so they begin to talk to Jesus and Jesus begins to talk to them. And, and they say, uh, you know, Jesus asks them, you know, why are you so upset or so sad? And they said, are you just visiting? Do you not know everything that has happened? And 
They tell them about Jesus' crucifixion and his death and their and mourning and sadness. And, and, and then they say, and, and yet even now we are troubled because this morning some women among our number came from the tomb and they said that the tomb was empty. And then Jesus responds and he says, oh, you of little faith, right? Or, um, oh, you how slow of heart you are to believe. Uh, verse Luke 24 ends this way. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. How many of us would have loved to have been on that walk, right? I mean, to hear Jesus himself describe all the places in what we describe as the Old Testament, what they would have just thought of as the scriptures or the law and the prophets and the writings. For Jesus himself on this long walk to pick out chapter and verse and passage and place and to interpret it in light of his own coming. This is what Paul does this is what Jesus did, and that's how Luke ended the Gospel of Luke, and that's how Luke ends the, go- uh, the book of Acts. What benefit is this? Of what benefit is it for them to hear all throughout the Old Testament that Jesus was promised, prophesied, and that he actually came and fulfilled those prophecies? Well, for starters, it demonstrates that Jesus is more than just some random guy who popped up, lived, did some incredible things, and then died, right? If you have these, um, during the intertestamental period, that 400-year time span between the Old Testament book of Malachi and the beginning of John the Baptist, uh, starting to baptize in the Judean wilderness, that period of time... There are as many as 250 messiahs, people who would have been labeled as a messiah, who rose up during that time. Uh, Gamaliel even points to this, I think, in Acts, the early chapters of Acts, and he says, brothers, uh, remember when Thutis came up and everybody thought he was something, and, they, and then he died, and then their, their movement dissolved. If this is of any consequence, then, uh, you'll, then it will endure through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Demonstrating the fact that Jesus might have just been a one of a number of sort of leaders that rose and fell, rose and fell, rose and fell. But here we are, where Paul and Jesus himself in Luke 24 are demonstrating that he is not one of those temporary rise and fall leaders. But he's been prophesied from the very beginning. And he's been demonstrated and shadowed and looked at in all these places, all throughout the scriptures that they know so well. Listen, these Jewish leaders, they were the most primed and ready to receive the gospel. I mean, Paul didn't have to instruct them on a new vocabulary. Witnessing to Gentiles might have been different. As a matter of fact, witnessing in our culture today, you can't just go up to somebody today and, and it's not adequate for you to say, listen, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. You have to back all the way up. What God are you talking about? And, and who are you talking about? We have to go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. There are so many people in our culture who don't even know basic Bible stories any longer. Basically Bible illiterate. And so Paul's method and Jesus' method of demonstrating how Jesus has been prophesied and promised throughout and showing that 
helps people be ready to receive the gospel. We pass out a book on Baby Dedication Day called the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It says every, the tagline is every story whispers his name, right? And it traces Jesus' stories in the Old Testament and how they point to him. The people who are most likely to get saved in our congregation are the children whose parents read that to them. Why? Because when they start to hear the gospel, they're putting together this long depth of content of scripture that all these stories point to a person the hope of Israel, right? That's why we give it out. That's why I encourage you to be a part of these family worship times, especially when your kids are little. Um, Paul spent this time with them because these Jews should have recognized Jesus. He only spends one day with them. And when they reject it, he's about to just drop it like in a day, right? I think when I look back on what Paul's about to do, I would think, just give them a week or maybe a month or maybe do some friendship evangelism or, you know, let them spend some time with you. But, but he gives them one day because they should have been the most prepared people to hear the gospel. As a matter of fact, Paul will quote Isaiah 65, 2 in Romans 10, 21. He says, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's why Paul gives them this day, and then he's going to move on to the Gentiles. Look at verse 24. They didn't all harden their hearts, right? Verse 24 of Acts 28 says that some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made this one statement. Right here comes, Paul's going to drop it on them. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You know who's the most likely to not listen to the message of the gospel? People who haven't responded to it, but have heard it a lot. Let me spend time with an unbeliever, a person who has been lost all their life, has no religious background, and there is something incredible about the message of the gospel. I mean, their eyes light up. They're, they, they, they're hearing these truths for the first time. It's one of my favorite things to do. But, but put me in a room with the religious lost, maybe people who have grown up in church but have never responded to the gospel. The gospel does very little to people who have repeatedly, consistently, over and over again, hardened their heart to the message and said, ah, I've done that, or I prayed this prayer, or I've responded to Jesus, and, and yet have have failed to, to believe and to trust in Him. That's who Paul's dealing with. He's dealing with people who have known the truth so long that they've just become hardened to it. The religious lost is the hardest category of people to see any sort of conversion rate. That's why Jesus said in Luke, uh, Matthew seven twenty one through 23, said, many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name and in your name cast out demons and, and in your name do all these things? And Jesus will say to them, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. When we get into the series in Matthew, we're going to get to Matthew 21, where Jesus proclaims woe 
to you Pharisees, the people who knew the scriptures the most but rejected Jesus the most, the religious lost. If I have a warning for you for, from the sincere heart, as much um, sincerity and love as I can muster, if, if you've heard the gospel over and over and over for your entire life, but you still lack assurance of faith that you've trusted in Jesus or believed in him, and your only thought is, I'll, I'll do that another time, or I'll do that next week, or I'll, I'm good enough on my own and in my own righteousness. You might find yourself in that religious loss category when it's too late to do anything about it. But Paul does see some of them believe, but most of them didn't. And so he immediately changes his tone and his message to one of condemnation. You've hardened your hearts just like the fathers said you would. You've rejected the hope of Israel just like Jeremiah prophesied that you would. And you're going to experience the same consequences that Jeremiah's audience experienced. They will become like a shrub in the desert rather than a tree planted by streams of water. They rejected the hope of Israel and so Paul moves on. The end of his session with them in verse 30 to end the book of Acts says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I think that those two verses uh, sell Paul short a little bit for what he accomplished in this sort of two-year period. We're talking about 60 to 62. After that, Luke, uh, you know, finishes the book, and, and we don't know, but uh, the, the legend is that Paul died after going to the maritime prison and in Rome and uh, was cure, killed by Emperor Nero, and it could have been shortly after this. But we do know that he was held in prison, and these last two verses don't quite show you all that he did, right? During, Paul wrote 14, 13 letters, right? Um, and during his previous missionary experience over a 20-year period, he wrote 1 Thessalonians, the second letter to the Thessalonians, um, the, a letter to the Galatian church, two letters to the Corinthian church that we have, the book of Romans. But at, in this two-year period, the ending of his life, Paul wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philemon, and the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Half of his epistles were written between 60 and 62 while in this imprisonment during the last few years of his life. What was his final message? What was Paul's ending like? How did he finish well or finish so strong. I mean, if you've read any of those books, you know how powerful they are and how Paul is renewed by the gospel even in this Roman imprisonment. Let me just give you a sample of a few verses. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's become known throughout the entire imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Paul is thrilled that his imprisonment has allowed him to share the gospel with the imperial guard in, in Rome. He continues in Philippians 1, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
In verse 18 of that passage, he says, uh, I will rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will actually turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Do you hear that? Paul's in Rome and possibly the worst prison situation ever. And he's writing, he's firing off these letters that I, I, I could die here or I could live here. And he continues that. And he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. This is a guy who looked forward to his death. Couldn't wait. It was, it was a 50-50 to him. Like, oh, I could stay here and have fruitful ministry or I could go and be with Jesus. That's some evidence of his mindset in the Roman prison situation. Again, in Colossians 4, 2 through 6, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word so that we may declare the mystery of Jesus on account of which I'm in prison. Help me, pray for me so that I can make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. In 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, Paul writing to Timothy says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You want a mindset of what Paul's life was like in the end? How he finished? dwell on those pastoral and prison epistles. They, they show not a, a bitter man who is accusing his opponents of letting him rot in a dungeon. Listen, I've been to Rome. I've been in that prison. I've been into that lower cell where it said that Paul was kept. There was an upper cell with a hole in it where the other prisoners would let's just say drop interesting things down into the lower prison where Paul and the worst of criminals would have been held. This is where he's writing things like rejoice in the Lord always. This is where he's writing uh, Philippians 2, that 5 through 11, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same faith in Jesus that though he was God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he made himself nothing and he became a servant to all and he, he uh, died and took on the death on the cross so that at the name of Jesus, every, that God had highly exalted him to the highest place. Paul is writing these things not under the best of circumstances on a beach in Spain somewhere, right? Paul is writing these things in this terrible prison experience. Here's a guy who is sprinting for the finish line, passing the baton of the message of Jesus Christ's resurrection onto the next generation, gladly, fully, but running through the line. And on and on that baton has been passed through church history to the point where here I am proclaiming the message of the gospel of salvation and the resurrection of Jesus, that, that he is alive today and that I've 
placed my faith and trust in Him and given my life to Him, and I know many of you as well have, and that we're following in this same footsteps of Paul. So if I can conclude this passage, one of the things that I just couldn't get over is how Paul finished well. How Paul finished well. And and to encourage us in a similar challenge to be people who finish the race. You see, in life, it's not how you start that matters, but how you finish. That's one of my favorite authors, a man named Steve Farrar, uh, wrote a book called Finishing Strong, and that was the point of his book, and it was about how to finish strong in the faith of Jesus. And he talks uh, a lot about how many people start really well. And, and this isn't news to you. You've met people who have given their life to Jesus. Uh, you've seen transformation to a degree, and you've seen them get baptized, and you've seen them grow in the faith. But how many of us over the last 10 years have seen people drift and drop out from the faith? How is it that so many of us know what deconstructing means? And in some ways, some people might want to use that in a good way, that they've stripped away sort of the religiosity uh, and the 1900s sort of cultural Christianity anchors that you know hurt the faith. But for more people than not, deconstructing means leaving Jesus altogether and walking away from faith. There are, you know, it's just in the lifespan of Ridgeline, numbers of people who no longer believe in Jesus. And I think that that culturally, church-wide in America is true. It's not how you start this faith, it's how you finish in the book, we were challenged. Uh, there was a challenge where one of Steve Farrar's uh, pastor professors in seminary said, you know, mark it down in this Bible class, roughly one out of 10 of you will finish in ministry. And Steve looked around the room. And, and when I first read this, I was at a, a school in Arkansas, a Bible school. And, and I was challenged to do this. I wrote down the names of Uh, all the students in that preparation for ministry class. These were men and women who were called by God to go into ministry in some form, missionaries, pastors, evangelists, worship leaders, um, all kinds of people, youth pastors in this class preparing for ministry, ready to give their life. You ask any one of them, their hearts were red hot for Jesus and ready to go and, and proclaim the gospel around the world. And in Steve Farrar's case and in his pastor professor's case, and and even in my case, seeing over the years names being crossed off that list of men who have walked away from Jesus, women who have walked away from the faith, who have abandoned a life of faith, demonstrates the truth that it's not how you start the race of life that matters, but how you finish. Paul finished well. Read the pastoral epistles. Read the prison epistles. Listen to the content, the tone, the passion, the enthusiasm. This is a man in prison who is proclaiming Jesus and and abiding by faith, who can't wait to die and be with Jesus. Oh, that we would all finish well like that, right? If you're going to finish strong in the race of faith, it will only be because of the grace of Jesus in your life. But, But His divine sovereignty does not abdicate your human responsibility.
all over Scripture, you see this unusual balance of God is in control, God is sovereign, God is orchestrating the events of your life, but you also see just as much human agency, right? You see clearly in Philippians 4, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is Christ who works in you to will and to work. There are these tensions all over Scripture where where He holds you in His hand and He'll never let you go, right, John 10? But, but at the same time, you must do something. You must, in John 15, abide in Me, remain in Me, come to Me, confess sins, walk with Him, repent of sin. There is a human responsibility on your part to maintain the faith while understanding that He holds you tightly. Listen, don't ask me to explain it, right? I don't know where the line is. I confuse myself all the time. Right? I had a great conversation with a guy this week and we were trying to tease out, now where does divine sovereign control and God's will, where does that line go over to where I'm working too much in my flesh? And, and at the end of the day, I said, I don't know. But all I know is I've got, I've got to be faithful to the commands of Scripture to do my part, knowing and trusting that He is holding me tightly and He'll never let me go. It's a mystery. I can't explain it. But your responsibility to show up in faith and remain in Jesus, it's not abdicate. You can't, you can't just let go and let God, right? That's not, that's not in Scripture. It's up to you to finish well. And you won't finish well if you're not abiding in Christ. I read a quote years ago that said, we're all just about three days away from completely falling away from some sort of public scandal or some sort of public trial. And, and most of us are kind of operating on day two constantly, right? The human potential for sin in our own heart, the redeemed is magnificent. And it's by the grace of God and your ability to repent and walk with him and continue in the faith that keeps you there. If you're going to finish strong, it's because you stayed close to Jesus. In Luke 24, I'm closing with this, right? In Luke 24, these disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, Jesus acted like he was going further. They were stopping, they were stopping at Emmaus, and Jesus said, all right. And he acted as though he were going to keep going, but they urged him. They urged him, please, no, don't go. Stay with us. Come in. And, And Jesus finally gave in and went in with them. Had they not urged him to say... Right? I think about the blind guy in Jericho who cried out and everybody said, shut up, right? Be quiet, stop yelling. And it, what, is he, what did he do? He cried out all the more until Jesus heard him. And Jesus, in my mind, I, I, I have these wrestlings. What if he had stopped crying out? What if these disciples had not urged Jesus to stay? This is the trouble I find with human agency and divine sovereignty. And I'm not clear on it, so... Maybe if you are, you can instruct me. I would love that. But, but there's something to the fact that if they had not urged him to stay, he would have maybe moved on. And they would not have seen the revelation when he broke the bread and they recognized him as the Messiah. And I wrote this note in my Bible on April 8th, 2013. They invited Jesus to stay. They urged him. And I wrote this note to myself, don't let him get away from you. Keep hold of Jesus tightly. When he ministers to you, soak it up and and live in it and, and don't let go. 
John 15, remain in Him, abide in Him. If you're going to finish strong, it's because you do that. Because He holds you and because you hold fast to Him. Paul did that, and I think we can learn from that today. Lord Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for the opportunity that we've had to explore, uh, to some degree, this mystery of, of the, the way in which you hold us and you'll never let us go. And yet at the same time, it does not abdicate us from our responsibility to walk with you. As Galatians 5 says, to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh to resist temptation, to flee youthful lust, to do all those things that your word instructs us to do. And yet we praise you that you will not let us go, that you are utterly faithful, loyal, and steadfast. For many people, maybe even in the room today, their faith is a flickering, possibly even extinguishing flame. And yet your word tells us that a, a flickering flame you will not snuff out and a a broken reed you will not cast out we thank you lord jesus that you will continue to be faithful to your people even if we remain unfaithful to you for a time and so i pray that we would that we would walk in such a way pacing our walk with you in such a way that we see that it's not how we start but how we finish and i pray that every person who believes in you would finish well They would finish their life as Paul did. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.